Welcome to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. Don Shelley, your host. Glad to have you joining us today. One of the things I have enjoyed, have enjoyed about doing the podcast over the last year is getting to meet some people that I wouldn't have met otherwise had it not been for this little stupid idea that Alexis and I kicked around for a couple of years and then finally got around to doing last May, which is putting forth a podcast on the concept of alternate history. And so we've met some interesting people along the way, people that I've enjoyed interacting with in terms of email. And as you know, some of them have actually been bold enough to join the podcast. And I've enjoyed that as well. So today we're privileged to have one of those folks who uh, was a listener, is now a contributor. That's uh, Chris Capola. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I uh, actually thought of this when they started talking about the hurricane history, uh, today's topic. And I bounced it around a little bit, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to get it together and to them in time to make it part of the other four. But here we go. Yeah, in fact, when Chris sent me the email with this with this suggested topic, and we'll, we'll introduce that topic here in a second. Yeah, I think the, the title of the email was Hurricane History Number Five question mark and um, you know we had targeted the hurricane history series uh, I, I think I mentioned this in the very first episode and just peeling back the curtain a little bit Alexis and I record, recorded all four of those episodes in one day she happened to be in town and so we just sat down and, and blew them out back to back to back to back you may have noticed that by episode three or episode four that we had lost a little bit of stamina as we moved through things uh, but we had specifically talked for a long time about it being in June uh, being the season to do that because at least here in North America, the Atlantic Hurricane Basin, that's the start of hurricane season. So we thought it was a good timely thing to do. And so we weren't looking for a fifth show because there were only five release weeks inside of June, but I'm very happy to have that here. And actually Chris and I were talking off podcast about the fact that, um, I think I mentioned this, my background, actually, I work for a company, we sell commercial weather services, so I have a number of my colleagues who are hurricane experts, so I immediately thought about the impact of weather on history, particularly hurricanes on history, and if you've listened to any of the four episodes, you know, one of them is for Galveston, Texas, which is not far from where Alexis and I, well, actually, it is where Alexis lives, not far from, from, from where I reside now, but I had wanted to do something more international. So when Chris came along with this idea, I actually mentioned to him off podcast, this was actually one of the stories I was familiar with and sort of wanted to do, but we're journeying, in, we're journeying into a territory that is not my historical strong suit, which is Asian history in general and particularly Asian history in the 13th century. So when Chris suggested, I'm like, yes, I wanna do it. And I've always liked the idea of the impact of weather and other external phenomena on military history, because it is a very important factor all the way through. And so the topic that we're going to cover today actually is a series of events that happened back in the late 13th century. Uh, there's this group called the Mongols, perhaps you've heard of them, and they are conquering, well, large, large, large swaths of Asia and the world. Uh, and one of the areas that they're looking to expand to is the island nation of Japan. And so where a lot of people don't realize is the Mongols, uh, I guess this is under Kubla, right? Is actually, yes. is this the con? Yes. Uh, is actually 
on two separate occasions make an effort to launch a naval invasion uh, to, to, take, to take Japan. And on both instances, the common theme is they run into some issues that are associated around weather, hence why it's this topic today. And so what we're going to be talking about today are the failed um, invasion attempts of 1274 and 1281 by the Mongols against Japan. And we actually derive a term that is familiar to many of us in the 20th and 21st century from these, which is the idea of kamikaze. Kamikaze means what, Chris? Divine wind. Divine wind. And so the idea here for the Japanese is that uh, as we see, these winds will play an important part in the, in the failure of the invasions. And so they think of them as being divine intervention to save their precious land. And then that's actually brought back again as a concept during uh, World War II uh, for the concept of, of kamikaze activities as if that the divine wind, that they're, they're doing something to defend the homeland. So Chris, we, Alexis and I often talk about, we're gonna talk about the what did before we talk about the what if. So do you wanna give a little background on the what did? Sure. So uh, I'm going to focus mainly on the second invasion, uh, 1281, because that's the most successful, the most important one. Uh, leading up to this point, yes, you you know the Mongols had conquered this thing called Eurasia. Um, Genghis Khan is a, one of the most famous. He conquered basically Central Asia, Russia, the Middle East. Um, after he died. His grandson, Kublai Khan, took over, was the leader of the East Asian Mongols. And he started, one of the things that Genghis had never done was unify and conquer China. That is what Kublai set out to do. And he finished that in 1279 when he finally took over the Song Dynasty. And he founded the Yuan Dynasty in China. He um, also built the city in what is today Beijing. So he kind of started that as a center of China. Um, so 1279, he finishes conquering China. And two years later, he almost immediately turns around and tries to take over Japan. And the reason I, I led into it like that is the 1281 was two-pronged. They actually had troops sent from Korea and from Southern China to try and take over Japan. So th this isn't just a Mongol, it's Japanese, or it's uh, Chinese, Koreans, and Mongols all trying to basically go into Japan and create a tributary feudal relationship with Japan towards the Yuan dynasty. And, um, the, and the size of this invasion is, I know as I was reading and getting prepared, it, it's somewhat staggering. It, it, it would be staggering in modern numbers. It's especially staggering during the time period that it happens. Uh, right now, the, it, it, the record says there were 142,000 troops involved in the second invasion. Um, to kind of give a little bit of context the Norman conquest of England which was about 200 years before but you know comparable historical time period uh, this is 10 times that size almost right and, and, and comparable also in terms of 
continental forces going to take uh, an island or a series of islands. Uh, so it's comparable also sort of in, 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 the, in the nature of what it was. It was coming off of a continental base, but having to cross over to, to, to take an island, or in right. the case of being a series of islands. Right, right. Yeah, and, and also, yeah, I guess up until, it's not really until the time of the Normandy invasion, going the other way now, in 1944 during World War II, that you see something that's of similar scale being mounted across a body of water or a channel of that size. Any, any amphibious invasion, anything. Yeah. yeah. So, so that says a little bit of the historical what did. So what actually, the first, the first invasion was smaller, just to give it a little bit of, of, of play. That's 1274, which is before the conquest of China had been completed. Uh, much smaller. <laughs> it's only 500 to 900 ships historically, and it's only 30 to 40,000 men. <laughs> you know, back to the point. If the smaller of the two was still very large. Uh, but uh, when that fails, there's the second attempt there uh, that's actually in, um, again, that happens in, I've lost the date here now all of a sudden, that happens in 1281. Um, and you said it was two-pronged, so a much more involved activity. So what actually happened when they attempted the second landing? So the southern, they had two prongs. One was coming from southern China. One would cross from Korea. The southern Chinese, the southern Chinese flank of this set sail and landed on some of the smaller islands uh, between Honshu, Kyushu, which are the home islands and the Korean Peninsula, and they just wiped the floor with the local defenders. Um, off podcast, we had described this as very much seems like Caesar going north, where you have the Japanese, the samurai defenders, who believe in honorable single combat, who ride out and try and challenge individual champions from the other side. And the Mongols fight as a unit, they stay together, they fire volleys of arrows, and just the way they conceptualize fighting is completely different, and the Japanese are not able to do anything to prevent them. Right. And so the, the, where this ties back into the weather impact on history is, as I understand, the second, because of the first invasion, the Japanese had prepared at least somewhat for the second invasion. So they had built some, I guess you would call them rudimentary coastal defenses. And so there is a period of time where this Mongol Chinese, this combined, the combined forces fleet is offshore supporting the invasion, it's during that period of time that what happens? That a storm comes up and basically scatters the entire fleet. Uh, one of the things when you look into this is the fleet was built, was not built for the ocean. It was a lot of shallower draft um, river ships because they, you know, this was huge. They did not sit there and prepare methodically and a hurricane came up or a typhoon came up and just wiped out the entire support force. Yeah. And, and the thing to note there, you use the proper term typhoon because that's what they're called in, 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 in the West Pacific. Uh, 
I couldn't find anything that was directly proportionate to the intensity of it. Obviously, any storm with wooden shallow draft ships that are normally supposed to be on rivers that are out the ocean are, go are going to have difficulty there. Uh, but the typhoons that pass through Asia can be very, very, very intense storms. And uh, because of the nature of the way they come up on islands, again, we talked about this a lot during the hurricane history season uh, series, you know, we don't have the early warning we do now with satellites and other things. And so you may be familiar with the type of conditions that suggest, oh, this looks like a storm is coming, but is it just a storm of the regular variety or is it a storm of a typhoon hurricane S variety? So I, I used to say that I could smell rain coming. Um, and, and it's but <laughs> nothing like that. No, no, you, you, it's, it's hard to know that this is coming. And so as a result, uh, not only are the, uh, are the, is the invasion stalled and ended by that, the forces are scattered. Uh, I saw estimates there where, you know, somewhere around the, the idea of maybe um, 60 to 70,000 drowned. Some may have managed to make it on shore and now they're sort of wiped out or wiped up by the Japanese defenders because to your point, uh, they've lost the ability to to land in the way militarily that they wanted to. It's no longer an organized landing. It's scattered pockets of survivors that are washing up on the shore and that's much easier to defeat or to overcome. So that sort of sets up the historical what did. What we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take our break here, and then we're going to come back and maybe finish up a little bit more on the what did, because what we are is a what if podcast. So now we want to talk about what the historical what if. So uh, hope that you'll come back and join us after the break. Join Chris and I as we talk about the historical what if of the Mongol invasion of Japan in the 13th century. We'll be right back after these words. Would groceries delivered to you in as fast as one hour save you a trip to the store? Instacart makes that possible thanks to personal shoppers in your area who hand-select items based on your preferences from the stores you love. And shopping multiple stores is possible on a single order. Instacart picks the freshest produce and even keeps your eggs safe, all while finding everything you usually buy, providing smart suggestions for new items, and even highlighting deals to help you save money. And now you get free delivery on your first order over $35. Let Instacart know we sent you and help support our show by following the link in the show notes. Instacart, groceries delivered in as fast as one hour. Welcome back to A Fork in Time, the Alternate History Podcast. Don sitting in the host chair today, joined by our guest host, Chris Coppola. Chris and I are talking about and exploring the historical what if. It's sort of episode number five in a four-part series on the impact of tropical weather. Yeah, this is Chris, Chris's suggested topic, and as we, as we indicated there in the introduction, we're going through the historical what did. Uh, this is about the failed Mongol invasion of Japan in the late 13th century. We sort of set the historical what did up. Before we jump into the what if, Chris, is there anything you think we missed in the historical what did that's going to be relevant to the historical what if? Just a little bit of what is going on in Japan at this point. I think that's a good thing um, to cover. Because, you know, um, the Japanese had the imperial system. They had an emperor. But this was the period of warring samurai clans. Bands of warriors that would form around one leader and they would fight against each other. Not long before this, you had what was called the first shogunate. 
Um, and what this was is you finally had one of these samurai warlords who had basically conquered enough and taken out the other one so that he was now recognized as the military power in Japan. Um, it, it is a little, you know, for those of us um, that are familiar with Japan in the 20th century, it is somewhat analogous because you have the emperor who is the sun god, who is responsible for everything, who is the political unifying factor, and yet he is cloistered away in a different city. You know, they don't talk to him about doing too much. He's the figurehead, and the development of the shogun system really unified, uh, unified Japan, but provided for a, a system where the emperor existed, and, and there was a line, a lineage, but he really didn't have any role in politics. Okay. So is it a fair thing to say this is the way that it's, it's a form of, it's a form of feudalism that's really existing in Japan. It looks different than Western feudalism that we know from Europe, but there's elements that are similar there. Uh, what's different is sort of the way that everything plays together in terms of what you just described there, even there, you could argue that the king was far removed from the barons and the others that were there. But the king was much more involved in day-to-day -day activities in Western feudalism in terms of issuing orders. That's not the case in Imperial Japan, necessarily. And, and I think that's actually an interesting thought is the reason, you know, how many English dynasties have there been? Well, one of the reasons is because they are involved. When something goes wrong, they're somewhat responsible. They're involved in making these decisions. In Japan, when something goes wrong, you get a new shogun, but the emperor is always consistent. And, and you know, yeah. Right, correct. So, so the Japan that we know today, again, extending down the what did, uh, I think the other thing to cover here before we get off into the what if is after Japan fends off this invasion, What's the course of Japanese history roughly defined in the period of time, pretty much since then all the way down through what I guess probably the, you would argue even into the 18th and 19th century, there's a common theme that exists yeah. there all the way down to the 20th century almost. There's a reason it was called the Hermit Kingdom. Um, basically, it had trading relationships with some of the, I'm going to say the continental powers, in this case, the continent is Asia. Right. Um, but it really shut itself off, especially starting in the late 16th century. Uh, they, you know, 16th century, the Portuguese and the Dutch start exploring. They start, you know, getting out into East Asia, looking for spices, looking for trade. And the Japanese settled the Portuguese in the city of Nagasaki. They said, that is the only city in which you can land, in which you can trade. And eventually they even took that away. And for about 200 years, um, any sailor that landed in Japan was immediately killed. They right. did not allow any outside influence. And so this was one of the interesting things talking about our scenario here. If I were to tell you, you change one thing, 
And we're going to talk about what happened 600 years later in just about any other context. You'd laugh at me because there's so many exogenous factors. There's so many other things going on. If the, you know, Normans don't conquer at Hastings, well, what about Harold coming from the north or all these other things going on? But the interesting thing about Japanese history is it is such a closed system between 1281 and even into the eight, you know, 1850s is when the United States opens them. Right. Um, 1860s, 70s is the Meiji Restoration. That's critical. But, you know, doing the quick map on that, yeah, that is 600 years in which you don't have a whole lot of other switches being flipped affecting Japanese right. history. And so you have a culture and a society that develops in a closed environment, which is always going to be different than the open environment where, you, where influences are brought in, you know, things are exported, things are imported culturally, not just economically, although economically that makes a difference too. I know one of the arguments that can be made is uh, prior to even the, um, to the, to the invasion by the Mongols, Japan, from a technology standpoint, lags behind a good portion of the rest of Asia. And the argument that can be made after that is they continue to lag behind because of the way that, that trade works and innovation happens. So on the one hand, they're economically disadvantaged, but from a cultural ethnic standpoint, uh, they're more of an ethnically homogenous uh, scenario. And certainly from a cultural standpoint, their culture develops a unique aspect that is not as influenced by the outside world that's the pros and cons of having a closed society and so as we were talking off podcast you know i agree one of the things i enjoy about alternate history is how you can go down one of these paths and suddenly realize yeah but how many assumptions did i have to make to get from a to z right you know what happened if something different happens around m <laughs> to use that analogy right. Uh, as you point out, there's not a, there are not as many external factors, not as many switches that can be thrown, and so it's a little bit easier to speculate a long-term speculation. I do think the flip side of that it becomes a little bit harder, though, at some point early on to speculate differently because you have no analogous thing to compare it to. You know, uh, often when Alexis is doing a show, we know what part of the world we tend to focus on there. You know, one of the interesting things that she and I often talk about is that when we start talking about English history, she can almost always, because of her knowledge of it, find something analogous, you know, half a century before, half a century afterwards. So you can sort of say, well, don't know what would have happened here, but if we use that as the, as the template, maybe it looks something like that. We don't have the something like that easily accessible when we look at an alternative Japan. So the good news is you can go a long way into the future. And I know I'm getting on my soapbox here a little bit. You can go a long way in the future and say, you know, this is maybe more, more easy to speculate, but it's also harder to speculate just because you don't have as much to, to grab. It's, it's more creative. At least that's the way that I think about it. So Chris, what is your what if here? What's our fork in this particular situation? That that they are successful in the invasion as well as they could be. They actually do conquer parts of Japan or all of Japan. Um, let's say all with an asterisk. Um, looking at you know getting conquered by the Mongols could go one of two ways. One way is your entire city, your entire culture is burned and salted and done. The other way is you pay some tribute and now are included in, in a modern term, a giant free trade area where you pay 
some feudal homage to the Yuan Dynasty, to the Mongol Emperor. But, and, and this was the one thing that the Mongols really did, is especially right in the Song Dynasty, right before they did this, they co-opted local elites, local warlords that were willing to play ball with them, that were willing to ally with them. And they used them to administer a large part of their conquest. So if we say yes, that Japan is conquered, this isn't, an, this isn't a Mongol occupation. This is probably just the Mongols picking and choosing which of those warlords, which of those daimyos would become the next shogun, which would dominate, you know, politically dominate Japan. I don't even think this necessarily means a break in the imperial dynasty. Right. If the, as you said, if the, if the if the emperor and those that are supporting the emperor are willing to play ball and are willing to pay up, then uh, there's no reason to change anything, right? I mean, it, it, right. things can continue. You just, you just change where the money ultimately goes at the end of the day uh, in terms of the taxes and the tribute that's there. And yeah, it's interesting because I even realized as I was using that term conquer, you know, conquer comes in different ways. <laughs> conquer can come in the form of, as you said, a military occupation where there's a constant state of having to fight to maintain, or there can be the situation, you know, I guess it's true. And to some degree, I think back to the Babylonians being an example of this as, an, as another thing that was there. In some cases, they were more than happy to let you have your autonomy. The Romans did that to, mm -hmm. to a degree as well. As, as, lo as long as you keep paying, you can be as autonomous as you are. Just don't, just don't cause any trouble over there. And it becomes more of an assimilation into a system versus an actual occupation or a conquering. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of Grant, uh, what he said in an earlier episode we did on Barbarossa, where mm -hmm. after the fall of the British Empire in India, the average Indian had never actually seen a British colonizer. But when you have a small population running a huge empire, it's an HR issue. You need to bring in some people. <laughs> Right. No, I, I agree totally. I agree totally. So what is the first thing you want to explore down that historical what if? What's the first major difference we would see with, I'll let you decide what we're going to call this this thing that, that's now emerged from this. What's the first thing that we see that's different in a big way that we would notice? The first thing is the samurai become a lot less important. Um, the samurais literally were the only ones allowed to bear arms um in no matter no matter what circumstance this follows from whether it's a civil war within japan between the allied mongol forces and the traditional hojo shogunate which was the family in charge at that point um you're going to have to expand you're going to have to have a bigger army you're going to have to have more people involved in this and when you expand that outside of this select population, um, that changes society. You're going to have more people involved in the use of force, involved in running the system. And it's really going to disrupt the feudal system that Japan was able to preserve for so long. Which is, as I understand it, so correct me if I'm wrong, because I may have a wrong understanding, was obviously a class system, but was a very, very, very strong caste system in the sense of, as you even mentioned, which 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 castes could even 
spare weapons, not only what rights and privileges they would have, but even something as simple as self-defense. Who could even do that? Right, right. And you literally had throughout the entire period, um, samurais had the power of life and death over anyone else. If you look at even, you know, feudal European history, knights tended not to do that because bad things happened to knights that did. Right, right. Yeah, And I think that's a great point because, you know, we all have a tendency, I think, to equate things in our head. And so, again, the first place that I go when I think about a samurai is I think about the equivalent being a European medieval knight. And there are similarities there. There's a reason you make that equivocation in your head. Don't focus only on the similarities, focus on what is what is different, because the differences are just as important as what, what is the same. And as you well point out, it was um, their autonomy was sort of unique and, and amazing compared to what we think of in terms of uh, West, Western autonomy that wasn't just, the, these weren't just, they were warlords of a type. They were military strongmen, but they were a whole class, as you said, of soldiers, where that was a unique functionality inside of that culture. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that struck me as being interesting there is that as you talked about the nature of warfare, and I want to explore this just for a second, get your thoughts on this. Um, the Mongol army, I, I told somebody this actually a couple of months back. One of the things I would love to be able to go back in time and see is a Mongol horde, just, just, just to experience the horse, the, the maneuverability, the horseback, the speed, the nature of the war was a very, part of the reason they were so successful at, at coming across the steps of, of Eurasia was the nature of how they fought. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is this idea, and I read, I was reading some of the you know, various thoughts of others who have thought about this, how well would that mode ha of warfare, the Mongol mode of warfare, transitioned over to the topography and the traditions of Japan, you know, would it have, would it have altered even Japanese military tradition in how it endures? Because the influence of horses, for example, cavalry comes to bear, which as I understand it for the most part was not really a Japanese thing prior to this. You had mounted samurai, but you're right. It wasn't as distinct as a, it wasn't a thing like it yeah. is in. <laughs> yeah. And of course the, the skill, I've read so often about the skill of Mongol horsemen, for example, uh, being mounted, being mounted forces, their ability with bows and other things to fight something incredible there. So you know, the first thing you've mentioned here is that it's, is it the decline of the samurai class or is it a restructuring of what the samurai are under Mongol, I don't know where do you, whether I want to call it occupation or yeah. control or what it is. Suzerity? Yeah, that, that's a good word. <laughs> um, it I also think reminds it's... us we have a sophisticated audi audience who can deal with a word like that. So. <laughs> I, I think it's a decline. It's a blurring of some of those lines between um, the samurai and the rest of the population. Um, okay. It, it, you know, one of the 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 other striking thing of if you're comparing European feudalism and Japanese feudalism is first the role of cities and the role of the urban artisans. In European feudalism, an apprentice was something you could aspire to. They were tradesmen. They were a middle class. And thinking of what that does, you know, years down the line, that's really important in Europe. 
in the Japanese system, a city dweller, a trader was as low as you could go. And that is important when it comes to think about the dynamism that that created elsewhere. Right. right. The, um, what will be different two or 300 years down the road is different for the reasons that you've just described there. And, you know, I even taught you, I can't help but think of this in the background of where we are now in a global pandemic. When I was doing the, one of the early sets of episodes there on the black death, you know, one of the impacts of that was it, it, it accelerated the rise of the middle class because you, you lost so many serfs and so many peasants who were responsible for the agricultural base of the economy mm -hmm. that no longer worked. To your point, if you change, if you change who is it, if you change who has authority or power or prestige in, in a society, which you would have been changing here inside of Japan, you can't help but change the society as well. And so that's right. another interesting part of that. So what else in a big way changes that we would notice? So I think the biggest thing is when I was thinking about this episode, it seems so small and so big at the same time because we now just talked about changing the entire social structure of this entire country. Right. The other important thing is their sense of nationhood, their sense of separation from the continent, their sense of we are ourselves and very, very much different, distinct, and cut off from the continent. These people are Brexiters, at their very core. And I think that's an interesting comparison of, you know, to, to help an American audience or an English speaking audience understand it. This is an island nation right off the coast of a continent that has a conflicting relationship with that continent. Are we part of it? Are we not? And in Britain, you know, they are, they aren't. They've always talked about this. In Japan, it has always been no. Right. It has always been, we are ourselves. And they are a place we go to conquer. They are a place we go to get resources we need, but they are there for our disposal. We are, there's no relationship the way there is with other nations. Right. And so the result of that is, you know, thinking it all the way forward that we were talking about, you know, one of the first places I went is for me, I can't help but come into the 20th century with Japan quickly because we talked about until the mid 19th century, they're a closed society. There's really no interaction. But by the time they're no longer a closed society in the original timeline. So now we're talking about moving into the late 19th century, early 20th century, and certainly the events of the 20th century leading up to the Second World War. This, this national identity that you're talking about there plays into that, right? I mean, that's, that's part of who they, when they're no longer closed, when they become more interactive, that plays out because of 600 years of their national identity and having fended off the last major, the last major invasion threat. Right, right. I, I think, you know, to, to take it a little step back, and I think I mentioned a little bit, the 1500s of Portuguese, the... Um, the Dutch. Dutch, yeah, they did have some relations with Japan, but Japan shut them out. They limited their activities. And I think in our what if scenario, you know, in, in, even in Chinese history, they had that feudal, that tributary relationship with Vietnam, with Korea, 
with a lot of other places and Japan still kind of considered them part of our world. Um, the big change comes when you had the, we say Dutch and Portuguese because they're the first ones to do it. But later on, other European powers come in and start literally cleaving off parts of this East Asian world. Um, the Dutch down in Indonesia, interestingly enough, you know, it's in the news right now, Hong Kong right. was the given to um, Great Britain, but Macau <laughs> was given to Portugal. And Portugal was the last European country to give up their imperial aspirations right. in Asia, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so I think you would have maybe a Portuguese colony in Japan because you didn't have this unified nation militarily ready to to basically expel all foreigners whatsoever, whatever the cost. And so that if you have that how does that play into the 20th century East Asia? Because right. in our world, in our scenario, in our timeline, Japan, you know, we mentioned plug Dan Carlin. We all love him. It's a wonderful other podcast. Yeah. Um, he talks about the supernova in the East when he is doing his series talking about Japan after the Meiji Restoration. And it really is a supernova, that sense of just coming from a tiny little cluster of islands to now you are in charge of all of East Asia. And what that does is it pushes out all the other powers. It pushes out the Dutch in Indonesia. It pushes out the French in Indochina. It pushes out um, the Americans in the Philippines. And what that does after the war, after Japan is defeated, you have a power vacuum. And the French come back into Indochina and say, so we're going to go back to the way things were, right? And the local populations are not okay with that. And so if you don't have that supernova, if you don't have Japan destroying that European power structure, if Japan is part of that European power structure, if it's just another colony, um, then the way that East Asia gets decolonized probably looks a little more like Africa. It, it, it happens a lot later. Right. And, and, and in a, a less, uh, not that it's not dramatic, the way, but in a less dramatic, convulsive right. <laughs> kind of way. Right. Yeah, no doubt about that. What else? Whew. Well, That's we a just lot. Changed, yeah, we just changed the entire structure of, yeah. a, of, a, of a country of yeah. and, and how you know and most, is that of, and most of and most of a hemisphere. <laughs> but is, is anything more? You know, anything more? Um, wow. Hmm. So I had a nice bookend to close with. If, okay. if you think we're close. Um, uh, if you think we're there, go ahead with it. If if you if you find a detour along the way, that's okay too. So earlier on, you you mentioned what the Japanese name for this phenomena, for these two storms was. Kami Kazi. Um, and so let's take it into the 20th century and talk about that. 
obviously we all know that was the name for the Japanese attempts to fight off the next serious invasion they faced, the United States. Um, that's not the only attempt. So basically, if the United States and you know the Soviet Union doesn't invade and, and they don't surrender in August, the United States did plan to invade the home islands November 1st, 1945. That right. was about three months later. Um, a month before that happened, Typhoon Louise hit Okinawa, which was basically the American staging area, the closest place we had that was going to be where, you know, we keep comparing this to D-Day. This was Britain. This is where we were coming from. Um, two months after the war is over, it hits Okinawa with 30-foot waves. Wow. 15 ships were grounded, or 15 merchant ships. Three destroyers were sunk. 200 other craft were written off. And it just devastated the harbor two months after the war. It would have been wall-to-wall -wall ships if this hadn't have happened. Right. And this typhoon came in and might have done it a third time. Yeah, I think um, I think that's I think that's an interesting thing. In fact, one of the uh, one of the, it it is a definite topic for the podcast. I I actually have notes and some files already, electronic files set aside for uh, what if there had been the necessity of a U.S. actual invasion of the Japanese uh, home islands to end mm -hmm. the war. Uh, and so when I start reading more and more about the actual preparations for that, the the size of that. Uh, D-Day looks like a walk in the park compared to that exercise, the nature of what would have happened there. So as you point out here, imagine that that's in the process of being prepared, staged for uh, Okinawa had been seized. In fact, the Japanese thought of Okinawa as the furthest out of the home islands. That was a major psychological blow to the Japanese to lose Okinawa as the, as the war in the Pacific and World War II was drawing to a close. Imagine now that that's being used as a staging area for American and other allied forces and along comes the typhoon that wipes out that fleet. So again, div divine winds come to save yeah. the, uh, come to save the homeland. Uh, I think that's an in interesting point and an excellent way to sort of, as you say, to tie and book in the back of the of the episode is that uh, an an island nation, an island nation, if they are, aren't polytheist and don't pray to the god of the winds and the sea, maybe ought to think about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And and, and the last the last thought is uh, that was Typhoon Louise, Lowell. It was a named storm. Right. Um. When did we start naming storms? Not, 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 not long before then. Right. That's the fun thing that, you know, that to help kind of bookend everything is during World War II, because of this, because of the effects of hurricanes on ships, when you've got a lot of ships in an area, you, you, know, you were talking earlier about detection, about knowing where storms are, knowing this is coming. And we started trying to do that. Right. And so in 43, 44, when the United States started deploying large fleets into 
the areas where typhoons happened, we started tracking them. And one of the things the Navy meteorologist did is started naming them after wives and girlfriends. And that's how storms started getting named. So Typhoon Louise was the second season of named storms ever to happen. And it just so happens that it would have interacted with a large allied invasion force that was preparing to to assault the Japanese homeland. So um, right. uh, as, as we often talk about, you know, um, his, history repeats itself and it repeats itself even when it's not just history repeating itself. It's when, when the circumstances are there to repeat it. So I, I've enjoyed the episode today. Chris, I'll give you one last chance. Do you have any other thoughts you want to share before we start closing things out? Not really. That just right. you know, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate you joining us, and again, uh, exploring this topic, which is connected to, but obviously very different than some of the things that we talked about during the hurricane series. Uh, I'm not sure, quite sure what title this episode will end up with. You and I are going to talk about that off podcast, but uh, uh, I have some ideas in my head, but uh, I, I like the idea that we came back a fifth time to the topic because I think it is a relevant topic and it's easy for us to, you know, again, barring something I, we, we you, you joined that podcast with Brant. Brant's been a, been a contributor to the show a number of times. And I know one of the things that Brant likes to talk about is the great man of history concept versus the bigger concept of the flow of history. You know, that, that, sort of warring concepts about history you know how much of it is the single individuals who can exert their influence versus the large mega forces and trends that are going on I, I fall somewhere in the middle I think it's it's both obviously that's going on but I think we sometimes forget the power you know not the great man of history but the great woman if you want to think of mother nature in that concept the influence of history is very often the case there and you know it's if it's Napoleon and going into Russia, facing the cold, that's weather. If it's the hurricanes we've talked about or typhoons that we're talking about, but so often it's these small, even thinking back to the D-Day invasion, the question about weather and whether it would be able to go when it, when it, when it did, you know, weather, weather's one of those, weather, weather's the hidden player of history. It only shows up when it shows up, but boy, when it shows up, it shows up. I, I actually thought about Louise in reference to a storm that did hit D-Day. Um, Basically, if Eisenhower didn't go on the 6th, the next point when they would have been had the right tide and, and moon conditions was mid to late June. Uh, turns out that at that point, there was a storm that came through that wiped out the American Mulberry Harbor. Right. Which was, yeah. <laughs> which, was, which, which was kind of important. So yes. uh, yeah, a key part of what's there. Yeah, good stuff. Once again, it's, it's been our pleasure to have Chris. This is not the last time you're going to hear Chris on the podcast. I know that without a doubt. So I want to thank Chris again for joining me today. I want to thank you for reaching out. And so as we're closing out here today, just to remind you that if you go to a to www.aforkintimepodcast.com. There's places for you to do the exact same thing. That's how Chris, that and through our Facebook connection came, came to know us. And as Alexis and I often talk about, we're not just giving lip service to this. We think of our, and I think the last time I saw a number peeking behind the curtain here, we have just shy of about 300 listeners worldwide in terms of how these metrics get measured based upon our, ho our host platform, which given that we haven't spent a dime for advertising, I'm actually pretty happy about that because I know the 300 people that have found us found us because they have an interest in this topic i think of them as a community that's around the idea of alternate history and so if you're in that community and you want to contribute one of the best ways you can contribute is reach out we're happy to have you and believe me we are open to topics and suggestions history is a big place 
it, history is a big place, but it's not always easy for us to think about what the next topic is going to be. So when somebody comes along and they have a topic that's ready-made and they're passionate about it, come on down. Yeah, you're, you're, you can be the next co-host on A Fork in Time. And so I welcome that. And I welcome Chris being willing to do that early on and, uh, and and coming back and doing it again. So as we close out the podcast here, once again, we just invite you to go visit the website, all the things that are there. Uh, let people know about us on social media. Uh, you know, if, if you feel so inclined and are capable of doing so, you have the opportunity to contribute to the podcast and support us financially there. There's the link to our Patreon page. But most importantly, we are appreciative of the fact that you give us your time. I know that that's a precious commodity. And even if it's your time while you're doing something else, driving to work or something else, which I know many people do that, it is your time and attention. And we know you can be doing anything else in the world to fill that time. So the fact that you've chosen to spend a few minutes with our little humble podcast, thinking about alternative history uh, flatters us, but also we recognize that as a privilege. So as we close out here, we say thank you for that. And we're going to close out the way we close out most shows. I was reminded I, I do this so often so that when I forget to do it, somebody actually pointed out to me that I didn't do it. Uh, the suggested thing, if you actually get to a fork in history, what do you think they ought to do, Chris? Maybe take it. Take it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, guys. Hope to talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to A Fork in Time, the alternate history podcast. Learn more about the podcast at www.aforkintimepodcast.com. Join us next time.